Amen. The book of Romans chapter 8. We'll begin with verse 24. Romans chapter 8. In fact, we're going to begin with verse 18. I, I was going to read a shorter selection, but I think we need all of this for the context of what I want to talk about. And uh, it may help somebody get their, their reading averages up. <laughs> Maybe you can check off your daily bread or something when you get back home. But Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, don't you think we could stay there for a while? That's, that's a wonderful, wonderful promise. Verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. And sometimes when you see the word creature like that, it, it entails more than just an individual creature, but it literally includes creation, all the created order. And so the earnest expectation of the creature or of all creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God before us who can be against us now this passage is is one of those passages that is often cherry picked uh, many passages in the scripture we do that we, we get little favorite little sections or segments or verses or phrases and we we pull them out and we use little segments and little bits and pieces so much that if we're not careful we lose the overall theme of what's being discussed and we lose the, 
the relation of one verse to another and how the phrases all fit together and the, basically the overall message of what the writer's trying to say. In this case, Paul, this is what an example of that. We often reach into this. In fact, we could go all the way back to verse 14 talking about those who are led by the Spirit of God to the sons of God. Do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. He received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, or as Paul says in Galatians, he hath sent forth the spirit of his dear Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, we may be glorified together. Now, we often talk about led by the Spirit of the sons of God. We talk about the Spirit coming in and we cry, Abba, Father. We talk about being joint heirs. We pull those little phrases out. We talk about the sufferings of this present time. We talk about the creature groaning and travailing and, and how to be delivered and, and the first fruits of the Spirit. We talk about we're saved by hope, things that are, that are seen or not hope. And, and we talk about the Spirit helps our infirmities. We don't know how to pray like we ought to pray, but the Spirit makes intercession. And we often talk about how that we know that all things work together for good to them who love the Lord. That's the one we pull out of there the most. And it's good. It's wonderful. We sometimes talk about the, the, the foreknowledge, the predestination, the justification, the calling, the, uh, and all of that. And we talk about those things. And then we often talk about if God be for us, who can be against us. Now, if you'll see, all, all of these things through there we pull out and talk about, and yet sometimes we miss the flow of all of it together. It all goes together, which is why Paul put it together. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? Powerful. I'm already just preaching deep stuff. I haven't even got started yet. And so, and so Paul puts all of this stuff together because he's trying to get across a central concept. And, and, and he, I like the way he weaves all of these themes together. And he's basically saying that the ultimate redemption of all creation that is promised in the prophets that God said he would do in Isaiah. Behold, I make a new heaven and a new earth. And in Jeremiah, I'm giving a new covenant, writing things in your heart. All that God promised, all that God said he would ultimately do, culminating in a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. All that God is doing, he is doing through the process of filling his people with his spirit and then working out his purpose through the agency of his people. God has determined to do this through us. And so he's saying that when God puts all of this together, fills us up with his spirit, and, and, and puts his purpose within us, he's bringing to pass everything he has determined to do. One of the central components of this process, one of the central parts of this process that cannot be missing, the only way that we are going to come to this point where all creation breaks off the chains of corruption and breaks forth into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The only way we're going to get there, one of the primary ways, we can talk about preaching, we can talk about singing, we can talk about evangelism, we can talk about all of the other things and they're all important and they're absolutely necessary. But there's one thing in this passage that Paul talks about that God is using to get his work done and that is prayer. In this particular passage, he tells us probably more, more powerfully and more profoundly than anywhere else in the writing of Paul how deep prayer, how powerful prayer plays such an important role in bringing about the ultimate purpose of God. 
And so that's what I want to talk about tonight, if the Lord will help me. I want to talk about praying the purpose of God. Amen. Praying the purpose of God. Now, I really feel this tonight. I feel like the Lord has given me this to say. In fact, I have right now in our church two pressing situations, one involving the death of um, a man in our, ch- uh, not in our church, but his son is in our church, and the man is a backslider, and his son attends our church, and he passed away Friday, uh, Friday night late, and then another sister that is that is right on the, and I, I really, in some ways, felt like I needed to be home, and yet I really felt like that the, the Holy Ghost was pressing me that I need to preach this message tonight, and I'm not saying that melodramatically, and, and you know what? I don't even really care whether or not this message goes over with, with you know, great fireworks and, and just blows over. That's not the point. I feel like God wants to say something in the spirit tonight that the effect is going to be with us for a long time to come. I'm, I'm talking about with me, in me and in you. I feel like the Lord wants to say something. I want to hear the word of God. Amen? I want the word of God to change me. Would you lift your hands with me now? Let's ask the Lord to help us. Oh, God. We do not take your spirit, your anointing for granted. We do not presume upon your promises. We know that we cannot speak. We cannot hear except you help us. Open up our hearts, God. We're blind except you give us sight. We are deaf except you give us hearing. Oh, God, do the work now by your grace and by your spirit and bring the word of the Lord that saves us to us. In the name of Jesus, we believe you for it, God. We believe you for it, Jesus. We believe you're for it. One more time, lift up your hands before the Lord, everyone. And let's give him thanks for his word. Lord, we come to you. We worship you. We give you thanks. We honor you. We glorify you. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen, 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 amen. Can everyone shout amen? You may be seated. Hallelujah. Now, I'm no expert on prayer, either in theory or in practice. Um, I don't come here tonight in any way pretending to be that. I come here as one very hungry to know the Lord in a better way, in a deeper way. And I come here tonight as one very, very desirous to deepen my own prayer life. I I want to know the Lord in daily communion much, much deeper than I do. Anyone feel that way? I think there's not anyone here who would say that we are the model or the perfect example of what prayer ought to be. I think everyone here would, would, would confess we can do better. And we're, we hunger for more. We hunger for more. We hunger to know Him better. But prayer is often something that we, we do, we practice, but we sometimes um, almost take the very the very act of prayer itself for granted. It's just one of those things that if you've served the Lord very long, you just, it becomes a part of you. You know, morning prayer, prayer in the evening before you go to bed, prayer with your family, prayer at church, church prayer meeting, prayer before service, prayer throughout the day. My dad is, is, a, is a man of prayer. My mother's woman of prayer. The praying people always have been. My dad uh, uh, has always had the regular habit of early morning prayer. He prays every morning at a certain time. He's done that for years. And uh, and yet he was always one who, throughout the day, just kind of kept 
what he called praying without ceasing going on. And uh, just throughout the day, we used to, when uh, he was first getting the church going, and I was just a teenage boy, and uh, he was working uh, just to make ends meet, still working, and, and uh, he did some remodeling. And uh, uh, these days they call it rehabbing houses. We just called it remodeling. I don't know exactly what the difference is. But anyway, uh, I can remember being with him. Does anybody remember? Now, this is going to go a ways back here. I don't want to take you all back into the ancient past. Does anybody remember when Big Gulps first came out? Somewhere in the early 80s, you know. Some of you are too too young for that. But when the Big Gulp first hit, you know, and boy, we'd go into 7-Eleven. And, and I remember working with my dad. I remember one particular day vividly. We were putting in a wood floor. I'll never never forget this. And we're walking through uh, 7-Eleven. We're in my dad's 72 Chevy that, uh, <clears throat> that should, have, should have been retired a long time before then. And... Um, and tools piled high in the floorboard, and I'm sitting here with my knees up to my eyebrows, you know, right? We're going to 7-Eleven to get us a big gulp. And I'll never forget this one particular moment. Don't know why this sticks in my mind out of so many, but I remember walking through 7-Eleven. My dad has this big, deep, gruff kind of voice. It just kind of, it just kind of booms, you know. And we're walking through, and we're heading over to the, to the big gulp machine to get us a big gulp, and, and I can hear him going, Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. He's just, he's just praying, muttering as he's going, you know. And I was a very, very self-conscious teenage young boy, you know. And ooh, it was like, I don't know him. Y'all know him? He just picked me up. He forced me into his truck back then. Help, help. It's before 911, so I couldn't call. But anyway, but I, I, I remember the impression that, that prayer, the impression that made on me of just talking with the Lord throughout the day. And we, we do this so much that it really is easy to start taking it for granted. But, but where does prayer really come from? What we're, biblically speaking, from, from biblical history, where does prayer come from? Why, why do we pray? What's the point of prayer? Well, who, who started this thing of praying? Well, it, it goes all the way back, believe it or not, to the beginning which is where most stuff goes, but it goes all the way back to the beginning where I'm tired tonight, I can tell. <laughs> Stuff's hitting me funny. But anyway, <laughs> I've all I've had is a nap, so you all just have to help me now. But, um, but all the way back to the beginning where Adam and Eve are walking with God in the cool of the day. And as they're walking with him in the cool of the day, they're fellowshipping with him and they're they're visiting with the Lord throughout the cool of the day. And we know that he came this one time. We don't know how many times before this he came. We don't know. But it seems like this must have been or would have been anyway a regular daily occurrence that they would meet with the Lord and they would fellowship with the Lord and they would, they would uh, commune with him. But you know what happened. Adam and Eve fell. And because of that fall, they lost that fellowship, that direct one-on-one -one daily, intimate, face-to-face uh, -face in some sense, in a spiritual way, with God. They lost that fellowship with God. And, and then, then something, an awful reduction, a reduction of humanity, of, of human existence, uh, the fall, the terrible shattering of the image of God in man and all that happened 
in, in, in all of that. It was just, it left man so far below what God had originally created him to be. And yet, because man was created in the image and glory of God, as Paul says it, or the image and likeness, because man was created in the image and likeness of God, and because God breathed into him the breath of life out of his own spirit, then the very existence of man, the very soul of man, the very being of man flowed from its beginning out of the Spirit of God. And this means then that when man was cut off from the presence of God through sin, his soul was distended and, and cut apart. It was like it was, it was hung out in the middle all by itself. And there was then within the soul of man this deep longing to have fellowship and communion with the Creator that gave it life. Every soul from then till now that comes into being, every, every child that is born, it doesn't matter what culture, what race, what religion, what part of the world, their soul was, was created to have communion with God. And when they don't have that communion, they begin to immediately seek for it. You don't have to teach people how to, how to worship or how to pray. They may not worship or pray to the right God, or they may worship or pray wrong, but you don't have to teach. You have to teach people to be an atheist. Atheism has to be learned in a university somewhere. Atheism has to be learned out of a book somewhere. So, a philosopher has to try to has to put that in somebody's brain because the only way you can ever become an atheist is somebody has to teach you to be an atheist because it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, you are conceived and you are born with a sense of a need for God. And, and this is where prayer comes from. It comes out of this deep need for God. I, I long for Him because I was created to commune with Him. I was created to be connected to Him. I was created to have fellowship with Him, to be at one with Him. And yet because of sin, I am cut off from His presence, cast out of His fellowship, and no longer able to share in His communion. And so that's where prayer begins. What is prayer then? Prayer is the admission, the confession, the recognition that I need God. Prayer is, is, is a recognition. I can't do this on my own. And so the other side of that is if we don't pray, it is basically a declaration I can do this by myself. And yet you put us in the right situation, even the people that are supposed to be atheists, put them in the right situation, they'll pray. Put them in the right situation. They'll call on the name of the Lord. They may not know what name to call on, but they'll call on the name of whatever God they know because something in their heart will say, I need, I need help. I can't do this by myself. I can't do this on my own. And so prayer then is the confession that flows up out of the soul, that falls upon the knees. And it is in and of itself a form of worship, falling on your knees and saying, God, I can't do this by myself. I, I need help. It is coming boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in the time of need. Let that automobile stray over the yellow line into your lane, especially on these back roads out here. People talk about traffic where I come from. Dallas-Fort Worth's got about 8 million people, and that means there's a lot of cars. 
And I hear people when they come to visit us, they complain about the traffic. And they say, man, this traffic is so dangerous, I feel like any minute somebody's going to remind What you talking about? You get on somebody's back roads, brother. Talk to me about traffic. Y'all know it's the truth. People go zipping by me about 175 miles an hour. Well, not exactly. But I got behind one guy today. The Lord was good to me. I got behind one fellow today coming across Highway 63, and I, I, I don't think he ever slowed down to 85. Don't talk to me about freeways. I'm telling you. You folks do some driving. I feel that spirit of Jay Hugh. That must have been what was on me. You know, when in Rome. So anyway. You let that guy come across the yellow line, you'll pray. You may have been going through your day feeling all, all self-sufficient. I'm doing fine. I, I appreciate it, but I think I can make it by myself today. But, but you let that, let that crisis begin to break in upon you. Get that phone call that you weren't expecting. You'll pray. Sometimes we wonder why trouble has to come. Sometimes that's the only way God can get us to pray. Sometimes that's the only way He can get us back in the garden where we can have fellowship with Him. Sometimes that's what it takes. But all through your Bible, we find example after example after example of prayer. And we find... We find, um, beginning with, of course, Cain and Abel coming before the presence of the Lord, it seems like that it may have been before the, maybe it was the flaming uh, sword that the angel held. Maybe that's where they came to the east of the garden. It seemed like it was a specific place, a dedicated place, maybe kind of the first preview of a temple uh, in some form, maybe in just kind of an open-air thing, but maybe it was the original brush arbor. I don't know. But they came to offer sacrifice before the Lord. You know the story of Cain and Abel and how that uh, Cain was rejected. And, and then not long after that, just maybe the next chapter or so, you find, them, you find the Bible saying that then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And it's during this time that men, when violence began to break loose upon the earth and when sin began murder, the, the spirit of Cain, and, and, and when, when the economy of that world began to grow and you see Cain's family and all the things they did, in the middle of all of that, there was still something aching down in the heart of man. Even in the heart of Cain, he he said, my punishment's greater than I can bear. You have thrust me out from your face. Even Cain himself, the first murderer, knew that he was receiving the ultimate punishment, that he was no longer going to be allowed to come before the presence of the Lord and bow his knee. Somewhere in the middle of all of this, uh, the Bible says that then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. There's, there's some disagreement about what exactly all of that means, but it seems to indicate that it was right here that men began to realize we can't go on without, without help. We can't do this thing by ourselves. We, somebody, somehow, we've got to organize. We've got we to have a service. We've got to have a prayer meeting. We've got to do something. We've got to get together. We've got to call on the name of the Lord. And so even from the very earliest times, we find men recognizing that down in their spirit, I can't do this by myself. I've got to come before the Lord and pay my vows. I need to come before Him and offer sacrifice. I need to come with uplifted hands and give Him worship. I need to bow my knee before Him and, and submit and recognize and recognize I am the creature he is the creator I need to I need this is why I tell our people at home don't, don't think you're excused and and don't think you can just lay out a church and don't think that you're going to get by just missing church I believe when we have church particularly on Sunday but all services I believe when we have church the Lord Jesus Christ is blowing the trumpet and issuing a summons and he's commanding his people to come and appear before him 
And if you don't show up for church without a really, really good reason, you are AWOL. You're absent without leave. Because worship is coming before the Lord and recognizing who He is and, and, of course, recognizing who we are and that we need Him. And so we see Enoch walking with God. I would have loved to have known more about that and maybe in eternity we can find. What did it mean he walked with God? It seems to indicate that somehow he got so close to God in daily prayer and somehow he became so intimate with God that it was as if God was taking a journey with him throughout the day. And as one man said, he, he walked with God so long and so far that he just never came back home until he walked right on in the, in the path of dirt that his feet walked upon became gold and he walked into the very presence of the Lord. The Bible says that he did not taste death because he had such a relationship with God. He was that exception that should not taste death. Even though it's appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. And yet somehow Enoch entered because he found a place of fellowship and communion with God that was so deep and so profound. Out of that deep communion with God flowed the preaching that we find Jude talking about where Enoch prophesied the Lord's coming with 10,000 of his saints and even the naming of his son Methuselah in the year of the great flood he will die which is what the name means which seems to indicate that 969 year old Methuselah drowned in the flood what profound insight what powerful prophecies that flowed out of this man's walk with God and from then till now Noah walked with God and others walked with God and over and over and over we find the Bible talking about those who walked with God until that's become a part of our language a part of our way of thinking until we begin to describe our relationship with God itself as our walk with God he has a good walk with God he has a strong walk with God or, or he's lost his walk with God he don't have the walk with God that he used to have and what we've come to mean by that is that it's that daily fellowship of walking in righteousness and walking in the will of God and, and walking in the service of God and doing the work of God. This goes all the way back to Enoch. And then, of course, you find Noah praying and you find Abraham offering sacrifice and Isaac and Jacob. And you find the great prayer of Jacob by the brook of Jabbok. And again and again and again and again throughout Scripture, we find the people of God coming close to God until God begins to organize prayer through the law of Moses. And He begins to establish prayer in specific ways. He tells them every Sabbath day you're going to have a holy convocation. This was the beginning of the synagogue. Later on it became the synagogue. But the roots of the synagogue came out of this seventh day convocation when you're going to get together once a week. Don't let, it, don't let the devil tell you that you can just come and go when you get ready. God has design, designed from the beginning that He wants us in His presence at certain appointed times. Now, in, in the New Covenant, we no longer celebrate the seventh-day Sabbath. Because the Sabbath was dead, buried, and resurrected in Jesus Christ. The Old Covenant is dead, buried, and resurrected in Jesus Christ. And so the seventh day is born again in the first day. And so now the first day is our Sunday, which is called the Lord's Day. And that's why you'll be in church tomorrow. It's not because somebody thought it up. And it's certainly not because the Catholic Church thought it up. 
And don't let anybody tell you that. Any Sabbatarian or any Sabbath keeper or Seventh-day Adventist or anyone that wants to come along and tell you, oh, that's the mark of the beast if you go to church on Sunday. And you just need to be, you don't need to be going to church on Sunday. You need to be going to church on Saturday. They don't understand. The old covenant is dead, buried, and resurrected. And now we worship on Sunday because the first day is the eighth day has become the first day. It's the day of the Lord's resurrection. It's the day the Holy Ghost was poured out at Pentecost. And it's the day that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And that's why we worship on Sunday. It's a Bible concept. But God has determined from the very beginning that He wants His people to worship on certain days. He wants them to worship on certain days. And so they did. And so He organized prayer. He organized it around the temple. He organized it around the sacrifices. Organized it around the priesthood. In fact, the priest was commanded to pray certain prayers at certain times. On behalf of all the people, God organized prayer, which had been largely, seemingly anyway, till this time, an individual thing, a personal prayer life. But now the Lord began to organize not only personal prayer, but now corporate prayer, to where everyone comes together and a representative stands and prays on behalf of the entire people. We find that again in the book of Acts, chapter 4, when after the day of Pentecost... After all of that had happened, after they were thrown in jail because the lame man was healed by the gate beautiful, in chapter 4, we find the early church practicing corporate prayer because obviously one person stood up and prayed that prayer because they wrote it down word for word in chapter 4. If there hadn't been one person praying that prayer, then it would have been hard to write it down. My point then is that God organized corporate prayer and corporate prayer is still important. This is why pastors will still stand before the congregation and will lift their voice and pray corporately representing the whole church before God. And we'll all stand together and we have a word of prayer. We believe in corporate prayer. It's important that you don't begin to think that well I've got my own walk with God see and I'm living for God all by myself you see and as long as I pray and study my Bible and as long as I talk in tongues at home I got as much Holy Ghost as the preacher does and, and I don't have to go down to that church because they only want me down there anyway because they just want my money and so I'm going to keep my money or I may send it off to you know to, to my favorite preacher that I heard on the radio or I read somebody's book or I might even send it to my, my mamie because she's needing some money right now because social security is kind of low and so I'm and, uh, uh, you better hang on a second because God has called his people to corporate prayer it's not just individual personal prayer that's important but it's corporate prayer God wants his people to come together and pray as a people God's trying to put his people together into a body he's trying to bring them into one holy nation he's working us together and we need to learn the power of corporate prayer that's why you need to be at prayer meeting that's why we need to be at prayer meeting Oh, but I pray at home, Brother Pixel. Yeah, but you need to come pray at church too because we need more than just personal prayer. We need corporate prayer. We need public prayer. We need the church praying together as one body in one voice, praying for the same things. Amen. This is why, this is why in our church prayer meeting, we have, we have our main church prayer meeting is on Sunday night from 6 to 7. That's when we come in before the service and, and we have our main church prayer meeting. That's when we expect everybody to be there for prayer instead of adding another, another night during the week. And so we come and we pray from 6 to 7 on Sunday night. And we'll, everybody will pray kind of individually all throughout the building, wherever, you know, praying whatever they want to pray about for about the first half of the prayer meeting. But about the, the second half of the prayer meeting, I have felt for some time, we've done this for several years now, at the end of the prayer meeting, we, we come together, everybody comes around the front and I go to the pulpit I take the mic and we begin to talk about things we need to pray about and we pray corporately we pray together we pray to, if any two or three will agree together touching any 
one thing. If, if we're going to have that kind of power in prayer, we've got to pray one thing prayers. We've got to be able to, to come together and say, okay, we're going to pray about this. Now, let's all lift our voice and pray about this. And then we pray about that. And then when we're through praying, about, okay, now let's pray about this. And those kind of prayers are very important to the church because we need that unified kind of prayer to where the church begins to agree together. The hell, hell trembles when the church begins to pray. The devil gets nervous when the church begins to join together. He knows the power of prayer even if we don't. Hallelujah. So all through your Bible, we find it again and again and again. We find Solomon standing to pray that beautiful prayer that we often quote. After the Lord had said, If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. People around the world are praying, but their prayers are wasted and their prayers are lost because they're not his people. They're not the people of the name. If my people, which are called by my name. And then there are many prayers that Jesus tells us about with the Pharisees that are his people and they're prayed in his name. But they're still useless prayers because they're not prayed in humility. They're prayed in pride. They're prayed to exalt self. They're simply public display prayers. They're show prayers. They're just prayers that they're putting on. Is this okay? We're doing all right? I know this is kind of Bible class kind of stuff, but, but, but is this all right? You all still with me? And, 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 so, and so sometimes if, if folks are not careful, they can get caught up in that Pharisee kind of praying and, and they can just begin to pray show prayers. But Jesus said those prayers are not effective. God doesn't see them. You got your reward. You got your reward. You, you, you got your, your, public, your public display. And, and so that's all you're going to get out of that prayer meeting. If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. That's the only way prayers are ever going to work. Then we've got to be his people. We've got to be called by his name. And we have to humble ourselves. And then we have to pray. You see, you have to pray. You have to pray in order for prayer to work. Prayer doesn't work unless you pray. Huh, imagine that. That's another one of those profound things I'm going to tell you tonight. Prayer doesn't work unless you pray. You've got you to gotta do it. You've got to actually, you've you, you got to pray. You have to actually open your mouth and pray. You've got to bend your knees and pray. The only way prayer is going to work is you have to pray prayers. You can't just imagine them. I know we can pray silently and in our mind, and I understand there's a time for that. But you can't just go on just thinking, I'm just going to kind of, you know, just let my prayers kind of just kind of drift up like a vapor out of my, the imagination of my... You've got to pray. Open your mouth. This is why I tell people who are trying to get the Holy Ghost, you can't get the Holy Ghost mumbling. You ain't going to get the Holy Ghost like that. Open up your mouth. Cry aloud to the Lord. Speak to the Lord with a loud voice. Lift up your voice. Call on the name of Jesus. If you really want the Holy Ghost, you've got to act like a drowning man. Jesus, save me. Lift up your voice and cry out for the Holy Ghost. If my people, which you call by my name, will humble themselves and pray. Seek my face. Now that's important because seeking the face of the Lord means to seek his approval, to seek to stand before his countenance. To seek the face of the Lord is to seek his counsel. 
not just his countenance, but his counsel. To seek the face of the Lord is to come before him to seek his words that come forth out of his mouth, to seek his direction. If you're really going to pray then, prayer has got to be more than just the presentation of our petition. If we're going to really pray, it's got to be prayer that seeks his face. Too many times then prayer becomes just simply the recitation and the presentation of all the things we want. It just becomes us standing up and, and, and rolling out our long checklist, our wish list of all the things we, and we just start reading off to God. Okay, now number one, Lord, I'd like to, and we just go down our list, check, 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 and we pray through all the stuff like, like, don't be offended now, but like the Lord is some kind of big Santa Claus. He ain't Santy. No, no, no. No, no. No, that's not the way it works. Prayer is not simply trying to get God to do what we want. But prayer is, if my people which are called my name will humble themselves and pray and do what? Seek my face. In other words, God, what is your will? God, what is your mind? God, what do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish? It's not just me trying to get you to do what I want, but God, I'm here to seek your face. I'm here to seek your approval. And then, what's next? If my people which you call my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Prayer never works without repentance. This is why we're taught to confess our sins when we pray. We've even lost the art somewhat in Pentecostal churches of corporate and public confession of sins. But there comes a time even when a, when a pastor needs to stand up on behalf of a whole church and lift up his hands and say, Lord, we've not been faithful like we ought to be faithful. God, I'm just not asking for my sins to be forgiven or for or Bill and Bob and Joe and Jim, but I'm praying for this whole church. God, our Father... Our Father, everybody say our. Jesus didn't say my. The Lord's Prayer is a corporate prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer prayed by the whole church. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give, not me, us, this day, our weekly. Well, that's just about how often we pray. Give us this week our weekly... No, give us this day... That's why we should pray it daily. Give us this day our daily bread and do what? Forgive us. And so the prayer for, for forgiveness needs to be sometimes a prayer that is prayed corporately where the whole church is standing before the Lord and saying, God, we, as a people, as a people, as Daniel did when he realized the 70 years had come and it seemed like God's word was not coming to pass, he got down and he confessed the sins of his whole entire nation before God. Oh God, help us see this. If we could get hold of this idea, I don't, need to, I don't need to go off on this trail right here, but if we could get this idea right here, if our young people could understand the effect that their sin is having on the whole church, if the adulterer could see that their adultery is not just what they're doing alone somewhere in a faraway city, but because they're connected to the whole body, the spirit of the whole body is being affected by one man's sin. And sometimes the only way to get things right is the whole church has to accept responsibility for what one of its members or two of its members or three of its members has done. And there comes a time when an entire congregation needs to fall on their face with shame and with distress and confess before God we have failed you. Let me tell you this. You get a spirit of gossip going through a church. It's not enough to just get the gossip or the, or the tongue or, or the source of it to hush. 
I'm telling you, when that church becomes stained and becomes dirtied by a spirit of division and malice that begins to run through a congregation, the only way that church will ever truly ever be clean is the whole congregation is going to have to feel the reproach of the sin they have tolerated in their midst. When the plague was going through Israel because they were sinning with the daughters of Moab, it was the zeal of Phinehas when he took the javelin and ran into that tent and killed that man and woman. And the Bible says, and the plague was stayed because the zeal of Phinehas was representative of the, of the mourning and the confession and the repentance of the entire people. And the only way that sin could ever be dealt with is the whole nation of Israel had to begin to feel a sense of responsibility for what was going on. If you've got one or two or three or five or ten in a congregation that are bad-mouthing the preacher and contradicting what he teaches and says and, and criticizing and nitpicking. The only way that spirit is ever going to be dealt with is there's going to come a time when an entire church is going to have to get sick and tired of it until an entire congregation says, that's enough. You've talked about my preacher long enough. You've run my pastor down long enough. I'm through. And an entire church rises up and goes to war against that spirit. That's the only way you're ever going to get rid of it. Amen. Amen. Church has got to learn to stand together. You've got to learn to stand together. So if my people which are called my name humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then what? Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. Oh God, heal our land. But God cannot, and I uh, say He cannot, He will not heal our land until we go through the process. If my people, that's a big if. Oh God, teach us to pray. Of course, after Solomon's great prayer, you have the prayer of Elijah. The Bible says that James talking about the fervent, effectual fervent prayer. Of a righteous man that availeth much. You still have a few minutes? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man that availeth much. And he prayed that it would not rain. How did he get it to do that? We could have used him in the middle of July. How, how, did, he, how did he get it to do that? You understand? That's powerful praying. I've never prayed prayers quite that powerful. Not that I know of. That the man could shut down the rain for, was it three and a half years? And then when he prayed and he told Ahab, go, I hear the sound. And then he began to pray seven times. You remember the story? And then he saw the cloud. The servant saw the cloud, the size. And, and Elijah jumped up and said, that's it. He prayed prayers so powerful that he literally affected the weather. That's, that's powerful, powerful praying. How did, he, how did he do that? It's because Elijah tapped into a secret that when you pray past your own will and you pray past your own mind and you pray past your own desires and you tap into prayers that flow out of the very purpose of God, 
Prayers that do not originate in man's imagination, that do not flow from the source of the human heart, but some way, somehow, prayers that tap into a purpose that flows from another world, that literally flows like a river from the very throne of God, then Elijah began to understand, if I can tap into praying prayers that are the will of God, then he said, I am guaranteed to be able to pray prayers that will literally affect the world. John said, we know we have the things that we ask for. Why? Because we pray, or when we pray, according to His will. So Elijah learned something. It wasn't that Elijah was on earth trying to get God to do something real impressive so he could shake up the the local ruling class. It wasn't that Elijah was twisting God's arm up behind his back until God said, Oh, uncle! Okay. All right. Okay, I'll give you I'll give you six months. No, ah, ah. He says, No, I want three and a half years. And God says, Yeah, ah, a year. And Elijah says, No, I want three and a half. Until finally God gives in and says, Okay, three and a half years. That's not what happened. But sometimes that's the way we view prayer. We think prayer is us trying to get God's arm up until God says I give we think that wrestling in prayer is wrestling with God to get God to do what we want (laughs) but that's not what Jacob found out Jacob found out that the wrestling match was not nearly as much about him getting a blessing from God as it was God changing something in him. And when Jacob realized what was going on, he understood God is doing something in me. And when God was through with him, he said, you're a prince with God. You have prevailed with man and you have prevailed with God. Because Jacob learned the secret that really effective prayer is not the prayer that persuades God to go against His better judgment. Real effective prayer is not the prayer that gets God to do what you want, even though God's really kind of, you know, I really wish we wouldn't do this. But you know, you've, you've, put, you've said the special words. You, you've, you've, you know, recited the formula. You've said abracadabra and you know I'm that's called witchcraft that's not called prayer That's why we don't cast spells That's why we don't mess with witches. That's why we don't mess with warlocks. That's why we don't get into witchcraft because witchcraft is man trying to tap into power beyond his strength to try to use supernatural abilities to impose his own will on others. That's witchcraft. I'll cast a spell on you. Right? So you start trying to put a spell, and that's what witches do. That's what, that's what uh, uh, warlocks do, and that's what wizards do. They're trying to tap in, and they end up tapping into demonic power, and they become slaves to Satan because everything the devil does comes with a price. But they become slaves to the devil because they're trying to tap into power beyond their mind and beyond their abilities. They're trying to tap into the power of another world, another realm, but they're tapping into it because they want to use the power to try to manipulate events to get their will. Brothers and sisters, this is why we have to learn the difference between prayer and an incantation. 
between speaking a blessing and casting a spell. We have to know the difference between the two because effective prayer is not me trying to get God's arm up behind his back until God gives me what I want. He said he would give us the desires of our heart, but based on what? When our ways please him. When we're seeking His will. When we're trying to do things His way. John tells us we are guaranteed He will answer if we pray according to His will. Let me ask a question here tonight. Is there anybody here that, I don't, I don't know anything about sports, I don't know, but is it batting a thousand? What, what is it when you, when you hit everyone? Anybody know? Oh, nobody wants to fess up. That's pretty fun. I don't know what you, I don't know. All I know is, is that there is a, I think it's, I don't know what it is. Batting a thousand, I hope I'm not wrong on that. Maybe I am. Is that right? Thank you. Somebody finally helped me out. Appreciate that. How many would like to have every prayer, every single prayer you pray answered? Would you like that? Would you like that? Would you like to have every prayer you pray answered so that when you pray, you can be guaranteed that everything you pray will come to pass? Would you like to have that kind of power in prayer? Would you like to be the kind of prayer warrior that can get things to happen every time you kneel down to pray? You know, in my life, my mother is a tremendous prayer warrior. And if, I, if, if, if everybody else has prayed and nothing has happened and I really want to see a response, I go to my mother. Mom, could you pray? Because when she prays about things, for some reason, God will listen to her when he won't listen to me. I can't explain that, but he does. She has built up a relationship with him over the years. She has favor with God, and God answers prayers. But here is the simple little secret to getting every prayer you pray answered. Always pray the will of God. If you always pray the will of God, you are guaranteed that every prayer you pray will be answered. If you will pray what God wants to do in a certain situation, and you'll begin to pray that promise in, you will see God always move according to His will. God will always respond when you're praying according to His will. Did you lose a job? You need a new job? Pray that God would show you how to pray about that situation according to His will. And this is why prayer, first of all, is a matter of discovery. The first thing we have to do when we pray is seek His face. God, how do you want me to pray about this? How do you want me to pray about this situation? Lord, what is your will in this circumstance? God, I don't know how to pray like I ought to pray, but if you will help me, if you will give me direction, if you will show me how to pray, if you'll give me a scripture, if you'll let my pastor preach a message, if you'll give me a word somehow, some way, God, just let me know how I ought to pray. Hallelujah. And so, when the New Testament opens, we find prayer beginning to crank up to a new level. We find prayer beginning to break through to a new place. We find Jesus going off in the middle of the night and praying. He was God manifest in flesh. He was the embodiment of the will and the wisdom and the word of God, walking in flesh. You still got a few minutes? He was the very word of God. He was the very wisdom of God. He was the very will of God, walking and talking and breathing. Jesus said, everything I do, it's the will of God. 
I don't do anything, he said, except the Father does it in me. The works you see me do, it's not me, it's not the flesh, it's not the man, but it's the Spirit of God working through me. And so those long prayers all through the night that Jesus prayed were prayers where Jesus was praying in the will of God. Even in the wilderness when he was first tempted and Satan tried his best to get him to pray prayers that were against the will of God. Tried his best to get him to pray the prayer of changing stones to bread. And tried to get him to pray the prayer of protect me as I leap off the temple or give me the kingdoms of the world all of those were prayers in a form and yet Jesus said I will not pray one prayer I will not make one request I will not seek God for one thing that is not the will of the Father and so we find the ministry of Jesus Christ all the way through. In fact, when he taught his disciples to pray, they came to him saying, Lord, teach us to pray. We need to know how to pray. Jesus said, okay, I'll teach you how to pray. They said, John's disciples have learned to pray. We want to learn to pray. That's a desire in the heart of every Christian. Lord, teach us to pray. Not just how to pray, but to pray. Teach us to pray. God, we want to know how to pray, and we want to know to pray. Teach us to pray. And so they came to him, and they said, Lord, teach us. And you remember, we've already quoted it. Jesus came back with what we call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven. Now, he also, I believe, used this as an outline of prayer. In other words, I believe the Lord's Prayer is a great outline for the way we ought to pray. But he also said, when you pray, say. So that means that the very words of the Lord's Prayer should be recited. We should actually say when we pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But we also know that there's more to praying than just simply repeating the words of the Lord's Prayer and just simply praying through some beads and a rosary and just lighting a few candles and going through some mumbo-jumbo. There's more to prayer than all of that. And so the Lord's Prayer becomes an outline. It becomes a form. It becomes a model. And you begin to follow it. First of all in prayer, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know to start prayer with praise, I'm sure. And then the next thing Jesus says, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What? Thy kingdom come. Seek first the kingdom. Jesus said if you want to really pray, if you really want to have effective prayers. Disciples, you've seen me pray. You've heard me pray. You've watched me pray. You've slept a lot while I prayed. If you really want to have effective prayers, then let me tell you how to do it. Start off, first of all, by giving praise to our Father, which art in heaven. Recognize God is in heaven and I am on the earth. And recognize the position that puts us in of falling before Him in worship. Lift up His holy name and magnify Him and give Him glory. And come before Him not with arrogance and not with pride. Not like the Pharisees. I thank the old God that I'm... But come before the Lord with humility, beating your breast. Have mercy on me, O oh God, forgive me, I am a sinner. Come before him with the right attitude. Come before him with reverence and respect, knowing that he's the creator and I am the creature. And with one snap of God's great fingers, he could take my soul and my life away. And so I come before him with respect and reverence. We must not be flippant in the presence of God. We must not be irreverent. In the, that's why some of the what so-called worship these days makes me nervous because it is not reverent. It is flippant. It is complacent. I don't have time to chase all that. But anyway, we come before the Lord. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then what? Seek first the kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. How? In earth as... 
this tells us then that the only way prayer can ever really be effective is prayer has got to be a matter of proper alignment. The only way prayer is ever really going to be effective and the only way the purpose of God is ever really going to be done is just as Jesus was properly aligned as, as the man Christ Jesus with the Spirit of God the Father that dwelled within him perfectly in fullness just as Jesus was properly lined up with the Father so the church has got to be lined up with God and this means the only way we're ever going to see his will come the only way we're ever going to see his kingdom come and his will be done is when we begin to see that earth has got to line up with heaven. We cannot be trying to get heaven to reflect earth. We've got to understand that heaven is the source. Heaven is the model. Heaven is the template. Heaven is the pattern. We're supposed to build on the earth what we've seen in the heavenlies. And so while we're praying then, our goal is to line our prayers up. How many times have we prayed? I have, you have, and our prayers have been out of alignment. Our prayers have been shooting off this way when God wanted them shooting this way. When we were praying the wrong thing, the wrong time for the wrong people. When we were praying prayers that were just wasted prayers. Prayers that are guaranteed not to get an answer. Because we were spending all our time trying to talk God into doing what we want. So the first thing he tells us then is our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. How? In earth as it is in heaven. In earth as it is in heaven. Binding on earth what has already been bound in the heavens. Understanding that it has to flow out of heaven. Oh, brothers and sisters, if you can get what I'm saying right now, it'll transform the way we pray. So that when we walk in to pray, it will no longer be simply checking off mentally all the things we need to get God to do for us today. But we can walk in. And I'm not saying we shouldn't present our request. We should make your request known unto the Lord. We should make our request known. But we need to understand where they go. Jesus didn't tell us to start off asking for bread. He didn't tell us to start off asking for forgiveness. He didn't tell us to start off asking for direction. He said you start off asking for the kingdom. Start off asking about the mind of God, the will of God, the purpose of God, the plan of God. The first thing you pray about is the kingdom. Thy kingdom come. If we can begin to orient our prayers properly so that when we come in to pray, we're not just trying to get God to do what we want. Lord, build my house, build my family, build my finances, build my kingdom. No, but it's first of all, God, let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. And if your kingdom will come, and if your will will be done, then I won't have to worry about it. You will give me daily bread, and you will forgive my sins, and you will lead and direct my path. I, I got to hurry. I, I know I'm taking a lot of time, but we've got we've got to get our. You'd think I preached so so many, unbelievably long sermons. I wouldn't even be nervous about it anymore. But it still makes me nervous. I don't want to take advantage of your time. But I feel like I got something to say to you now, because I, I know I know I know it's talking to me. I know this is something I'm not talking to you out just out of some theory, out of some book. This is something I'm working on in my own prayer life. God, when I get down to pray, I want to... That's why they said pray. Solomon said they're going to pray toward Jerusalem. Why? Because he wanted them, no matter where they were in the world, to be properly lined up so they could be looking toward where the glory cloud of God's presence was, so they could be focused on the thing that really matters. It doesn't matter what's going on around you, Daniel, in Persia or in Babylon. It doesn't matter what's happening in the world around you. It doesn't matter what the headlines say. It doesn't matter... 
matter what's going on in politics. It doesn't matter what's going on with the economy. It doesn't really matter what the stock market is doing because I'm not looking at all of that when I pray, but I'm looking toward the temple. I'm looking toward the church of the living God. I've lifted up my eyes toward the heavens where Jesus is upon the throne. And if I can pray with my eyes on Him, it doesn't matter what Wall Street is doing. It doesn't matter what Washington, D.C. is doing. It doesn't matter about the war in Iraq because when I'm praying and I know Jesus is in control, there ain't a devil in hell that can shatter my faith because my eyes are on Him while I pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it's about alignment. It's about alignment. It's about getting our prayers lined up with God. Prayers, first of all, discovery. Discovery. What I mean by that is I come into the prayer room not to come in and tell God what all he needs to be doing today. Let me, let me fill in your schedule for you, God. No, but coming into the prayer room saying, God, I don't even know how to pray like I ought to pray. I need the Spirit to help me, to make intercession for me. So transform the way we pray. That lost child. You may be praying for God to save them this Sunday. And God says, no, I'm not going to save them this Sunday. I've got another six months that I want to take them through. Because I'm chastening that child of yours. Because I love them. And I'm giving them over to Satan that the body might be destroyed. But I'm going to save their spirit. And that doesn't mean in some kind of way that God is going to save them even though they die in their sins. That's not what I mean by that. But God, I believe Paul is teaching us that there is a point of recovery that will come after the Lord has allowed the devil to do his work and to chasten. And we can be praying and we can be hindering and frustrating the will of God because we're so intent on praying what we want, what we want, what we want. And all God is looking for is for somebody to get their prayers properly lined up with him. You've heard about Hannah, haven't you? You've heard that Hannah wanted a son, haven't you? God wouldn't answer her prayers, would he? No son, though she prayed fervently, even to the point to where she was accused of being drunk. Until Hannah, you've heard this before, surely. Until Hannah, who wanted a son, began to pray the prayers of God, who was wanting a prophet. And she said, Lord... If you will give me a son, I will give him to you. And God said, that is what I've been waiting for. When you get your prayers lined up with my purpose, when you begin to pray something bigger than just what you want in your life, and you begin to pray the purpose of God, then, then God said, now you'll get your son. Hannah got a son. God got a prophet. It's about alignment. It's about getting our prayers properly lined up with the will of God. Jesus taught us about this when he was in the garden praying. First thing he said, if you remember, was, Father, you remember what he said? Father, if it be possible, 
let this cup pass from me. The first thing Jesus was, was honest. He didn't come in pretending he wanted to go to the cross. He came and he laid his cards on the table, if you'll pardon the expression. He came and he laid his will out and said, Now, Father, you understand, we're not talking here about more than one God. We're talking about God in Christ. Jesus, as a man, laid his will on the table. Father, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to suffer the shame. I don't want to be humiliated. I don't want to be stripped naked and beaten and bruised and nailed to a tree. I don't want to do this. The first thing we have to do when we pray is come into the presence of the Lord and lay everything on the table. Be honest with God. Not disrespectful, not irreverent, not in God's face, but in a very reverent way. Say, Lord, I'm just going to be honest with you now. Here's what I want. God, they're considering laying me off at my job. God, I, I, I want to keep this job, but nevertheless. Just a few weeks ago, a man in our church who's one of our young preachers, he's only been in the church probably three or four years himself, but he's coming up in ministry and, and unbelievably used of God already, but he's one, just one of the guys in the church there. He helps with one of the daughter works on Sunday. And he, um, he came to me, and, and, and he was having trouble on his job. Real, real bad trouble, and they were, there was just some problems, had to, had to do with different issues, honesty, and different things that, that he would not go along with some things, and a boss that didn't like him, just some stuff. And he, let's pray, he asked me, he said, could we pray, could you pray with me that God would give me another job, I need another job. And he began to pray, and he was getting really frustrated, he was just to the point where he was willing to say, I may not have another job lined up, but I'm, I'm ready to quit this one. And he said he felt like the Holy Ghost just told him, hang on. And so he did, even though it was very difficult. And within just a few days of the day he was going to quit, he ended up teaching a Bible study to, I think it was three different men that he worked with. Two of them came in and received the Holy Ghost and were baptized in Jesus' name. One of those young men, and these, these two men are, are they're actually... What we do is our daughter works, have church on Thursday night and Sunday morning, and then everybody comes in on Sunday night. So they all come in on Sunday night. But these men are actually, uh, have actually been won into that daughter work. And so the, the young man is the pastor over that work is actually their pastor. But when they came in, that, that one young man that he won to the Lord from his job became the key to a breakthrough for that, in, for that daughter work, not just for that particular individual. But revival began to break loose and, and family members began to come in out of that one young man. And now Brother Lee Timmons comes to me and he says, Pastor, Pastor, he says, he says, look, if God had given me what I wanted, I'd have never won, Brother Jason. Sometimes it's better just to come in and say, Lord, I don't know what to pray for. I don't know how to pray about this situation. Would you show me how to pray? God, I'm willing to pray. God, I'm willing to say anything you want me to say. I'm willing to be used of you. I'll be a vessel. But Lord, you're going to have to put the prayer in my mouth. I don't know how to pray it. And so Jesus said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
I, I, don't, I don't want to do this. Then he said what? Never. You, we must pray our way all the way to nevertheless. You haven't really prayed until you pray nevertheless. And so first of all, Jesus laid his will out on the table and then said, but nevertheless, what? You still with me? Nevertheless, I'm almost done. I really am. Supper's coming. Relief, help is on the way. Nevertheless, say it now, nevertheless, not my will, but but you cannot pray, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will, if you don't know the difference. If you don't know the difference between mine and thine, you can't pray that. As long as you are equating what you want with the will of God, and it's amazing how many people do that, not realizing that that's idolatry. You end up praying to your own will. You end up bowing down to your own self-image which is exactly what all idolatry is anyway. All idolatry is just the expression of selfish desires. We need fire, so we worship fire. We need sun, so we worship the sun. We need rain, so we worship the rain. We need... All idolatry is is just simply an embodiment or a personification in some way of the desires of the human heart. Ultimately, man is not worshiping statues of gold and silver. And... Ultimately, man's worshiping man. And so when we kneel down to pray and we start talking to God and we don't take the time to find out what the difference is between my will and thy will so we cannot pray an honest nevertheless, when we, when we pray without that process of discovery, that process of sorting out the difference, we blunder our way through prayers that never get answered. And God who loves us, He is our Father and He has compassion upon us and He smiles upon us. But He says, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. But God, I want it so bad. I love Him, God. I love Him. I want to marry Him, God. Give Him to me. Jesus says, nah. <laughs> no, no, no. I know stuff about Him you don't know. Not going to do it. Oh, God, give it to me. Or there's some man over here. He's walking the, walk, walking the floors of the prayer room saying, God... Lord Jesus, I'm believing you to send me a wife. Oh, God, I'm believing you to give me a wife. God, you know I'm 17 now and I need a wife, Lord. God, I'm believing you for a wife. And God says, give you a wife? You need a job. <laughs> Go look at Adam and see if it isn't true. God... God brought all the animals to him. Or actually, before that, he said, it's not good for a man to be alone. He said, I'm going to give him a help meet, but he didn't do it. Go look at it. He said, it's not good for him to be alone. He said, I'm going to give him a... But he didn't do it. He gave him a job. He called all the animals in and said, name these animals. When you get that done, then I'll give you a wife. <laughs> it's the truth. You go look for yourself. It's still the truth. Young men don't even have... They, this is one thing that's been gone bad wrong in our world today and the church has bought into it. Our kids don't even have any business dating until they're old enough to start thinking about marriage. God never intended for the male-female relationship to be recreational romance where we use one another's emotions and bodies to be discarded and thrown away. All dating is is divorce practice.
guaranteed to make at least one person mad with that statement every time. <laughs> I love you, I love you not. 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 Give my heart, take it. Give my heart, take it. Give my heart. All you're doing is pr- you're practicing for divorce. No wonder our world's so messed up. They don't know how to get married. No wonder they're having so many divorces. They're getting a divorce because they don't know how to get married. They don't know how to court one another. They don't know how to prepare for it. I don't even need to get on that. I don't have time to talk about that. And so he's praying, God, give me a wife. Oh, God, give me a wife. Oh, God, give me a wife. God says, you don't need a wife. You need a job. You don't need a wife. You have eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. God says, you don't need a wife. You haven't got control over the lust of the flesh. And the reason our men cannot control the passions of lust is because they can't control the passions of anger. You go back and study it and you'll see that when Jesus teaches on lust, before He ever teaches on lust, He starts with anger. That's why our boys from 1 to 10 need to be taught to control their temper so that from 10 to 20 they can be taught to control their lust. And if we don't teach our boys to have self-control when it comes to their temper, and if we don't teach our boys to have self-control when it comes to their anger, they will never learn to have self-control when it comes to their lusts. And they'll yield to every lust that comes along and their eyes, as Peter said, will be filled with adultery and they will not be able to stop sinning. It all goes back to your temper. Men, you're struggling. Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes. The only way you're ever going to get victory over the lust of the flesh is you've got to go back to that root primal passion of anger. Of I want my way. Because that's what lust is. Lust is saying, I want that woman, but she's not yours. I don't care. I want her. Self-will. It all goes back to self-will. And that's why the only way prayer is ever going to be effective is prayer has to address the issue of self-will. And when we take prayer and turn it into a celebration of self-will and an enshrinement of self-will and we turn our prayers into a worship of our own will, then we are guaranteed that our prayers are going to become the very seedbed of the things that God is trying to eradicate in our life. We will end up having churches that can pray all night and then fornicate the next night. Churches that can have can, can pray. I've been in places where they can pray. Charismatics out pray us every day, all day long. And yet they will pray their way right across the sanctuary and slip out the side door with somebody else's wife. Why do they do that? Because they're praying prayers that are nothing more than the celebration of their own self-will. It's all about success. It's all about love. It's all about money. It's all about what I want. It's all about gimme, 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 gimme. Am I telling you the truth? You know what I'm... Churches are being built today. One was just built right across the highway from my house. And their slogan up on the billboard is success in life. Success in life. Success... It's all over our city. Success in life. 18-wheeler trailers painted. Success in life. I went over on a Wednesday night just to hear what it was all about. Walked in and the man preached about nothing but money, 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 money. All he was doing and all he is doing is building a temple to the God he serves, which is the all mighty dollar and the only reason he serves the almighty dollar is not because his love is really the love of money but really it's the love of self and money makes his self will affordable are you hearing what I'm saying this is why prayer has got to be a matter of coming in before the Lord and bringing our will down before him and casting ourselves before his feet and saying God now this is what I want but nevertheless until you nevertheless you haven't really prayed at all but nevertheless even though this is what I want nevertheless 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 God not my will but
Thy will be done. Everybody stand with me. I'm about halfway through my message. And I'm not kidding. But I don't have time to preach the rest. But let me summarize. Let me summarize for you. What I feel like all of this is leading us to. The purpose of God is directly connected with the prayers of His people. Now we know it's connected to preaching. We know it's connected to praise. We know it's connected to proclamation or or evangelism. We know it's connected to all of that. But there's one part, one component here that cannot be left out and that's prayer. Because prayer is the expression, it is the pouring forth of the purpose and the will of God through human agency. Now listen close. This is what I don't have time to spend a lot of time on here, but I just want to touch it so you can get get just a little idea of what I'm talking about. In, In John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, Jesus tells his disciples about how he is going away, but he will come back to them as the Holy Ghost. We know the Holy Ghost, of course, is the Spirit of God in Christ and it is indwelling us from Pentecost till now. And he said, when I give you the Holy Ghost, this other comforter, this counselor, this guide, this usher, this one called alongside to lead you into the purpose of God, this comforter is going to abide with you. And he said, this comforter when he comes is not going to speak anything of himself, but he's going to speak of me. He's going to speak the mind and the will of God in Christ. But Jesus said, it's expedient for you that I go away. It would seem to me like that it would be better, I don't know who's preaching tomorrow and no, no slight to, who, to whomever may be preaching, but it seems to me like that it would be better tomorrow night here and in Fort Worth where I will be, God willing. It seems like it would be better if Jesus would come and do the preaching. I mean, in the flesh, you understand? Personally. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm going to do my best. But I, I'm not so goofy to think that if I could do it, boy, I can do it as good. Oh, no, if Jesus could preach, and just, just, just let me sit over here and listen, right? How many would love, if you knew Jesus was going to be here tomorrow night to preach, would you come? You better get here early. That's exactly right. Would you come? If you knew Jesus was going to be here tomorrow night, would you come? But here's the problem. If you knew Jesus was going to be here tomorrow night, what would we do in Fort Worth? They'd have to listen to me without Jesus. And so Jesus said, as long as I'm here in this flesh, I can only do what I can do in the flesh. But when I ascend into my glory, the very humanity of Christ becomes omnipresent through the indwelling Spirit of God pouring through Him, insomuch that the very Spirit of Christ is poured out into the world at Pentecost, and the very Spirit of Christ becomes omnipresent, insomuch that I can actually say to you without lying, Jesus will be here tomorrow night. He's here right now. 